Hi Lars, thanks for being with us today. You're going to talk to us about your new novel, Nietzsche and the Burbs. Let me begin by asking you, uh, well, what motivated you to, to write this novel? Thanks, Patrick. Yeah, my novel is uh, um, an account of a contemporary version of, of Nietzsche, who is uh, a new boy in a sixth form in the prosperous suburbs of the uh, southeast of England. Now, Nietzsche is a nickname his uh, fellow pupils give him, and he becomes the lead singer of a rock band, but looking for a new collective way of life in the midst of the you know, boring and passionless suburbs. And the reason why I thought this might be an interesting novel to write is because reflecting on my own background, my own upbringing in the suburbs of, uh, of London, I thought, what's the very opposite of the suburbs? What's the opposite of, uh, of the blandness, of the, of, the, of the boredom of the suburbs? And for me, it was, it was a philosophy of, of Nietzsche, which is so life-affirming, so passionate, so exciting, and reaches so high in its goals. It's not actual Nietzsche, but it's a very similar approximation of Nietzsche. I mean, in the, in the novel, he's, um, you know, he comes from a sort of aristocratic or sort of lower aristocratic uh, background. He's troubles with mental health. He has a very, I shall say, chaste relationship with a lady called Lou, which is all very, very similar. Um, so uh, I was wondering why that character of Nietzsche, or this reincarnation of Nietzsche, what? Um, so uh, how? What's his function in the book? Right? What is he? What is he? What is he? How? How is he an avatar for the, the the main characters? And the main characters are, of course, are sort of a bunch of uh, sort of teenagers who are about to sort of in the, in the between stage between school and sort of finishing school and going off to uni and things like that. That's right. Okay, so my Nietzsche, uh, this Nietzsche who is reincarnated into the contemporary suburbs of London, is a mouthpiece for a particular kind of nihilism, which he claims, um, it's one of the things he says in the novel, which reveals itself only now. So for my character Nietzsche, we're living through a moment of what he, what he calls the fulfillment of nihilism, which is a kind of concretization of the death of God. So this is what we're living through now, according to Nietzsche, in the suburbs. We're living through this ordeal of nihilism. Nihilism presents itself today as such in the form of, of, of our experience. Now, for, for my Nietzsche, what's characteristic of our experience is it is characterized as, as despair. And despair, according to the Nietzsche of my novel, has become the most common experience, the most widespread and for this reason, it's no longer possible to ignore the questions raised by the death of God, um, the questions raised by the, the collapse of the, a general sense of meaning and purpose to existence. So the challenge for the Nietzsche of my novel is how we might become worthy of the ordeal of nihilism, how we might become worthy of the death of God. Could, could you elaborate a little bit on that word nihilism, just because it's a sli slightly technical term, I suppose, that not everybody who's listening might be familiar with? Yes, of course. So nihilism is generally understood as 
a falling away of a sense of meaning and purpose. That's the usual understanding of this word. The, the, the things which formerly appeared to be valuable, intrinsically so, now appear to be meaningless, unimportant. And so nihilism we often link to a kind of teenage despair, a teenage sense of things not mattering, things not being important. Now, in Nietzsche's work, we have a more subtle version of, or a subtle, more subtle account of, of nihilism. In Nietzsche's work, nihilism is not simply about the meaninglessness, meaninglessness of, of, of life. It's not simply about that. It's about our reaction to um, what we discover uh, as meaninglessness. It's our, our reaction to the universe without purpose, without intrinsic meaning. And what Nietzsche argues, and this is the historical Nietzsche I'm talking about here, what Nietzsche argues is that the, the importance is to discover life is meaningless and then to try and make meaning in some sense, try and produce meaning, try to live out a life which is, uh, which is meaningful in some way. And the point is for Nietzsche, the historical Nietzsche, we have to struggle to live. And living is a struggle. We have to struggle for meaning. So this, is, this goes on in the historical Nietzsche, as you put it. We have this distinction between what he calls passive and active nihilism. And uh, passive nihilism is the, I suppose, the negative response to the death of God, where we sort of we sort of look inwards, we become despairing, we do not understand our direction, our purpose, and um, that leads to all types of uh, self-destructive consequences for ourselves and others. Now, Nietzsche, active, for Nietzsche, active nihilism is, as you say, the response to that. How do we, how do we take on that ordeal and uh, turn, <laughs> turn to accentuate the positive, I suppose. How do we turn this into something productive? Uh, is in the novel then, is that, that that's the arc uh, of the characters. That's the plot, I guess. They, they, they are in this state of passive nihilism and they're trying to move towards something meaningful and something productive. That's exactly it. I suppose we, we should talk a little bit about the idea of the death of God. Yes. Just to set a context here. So we can understand the death of God as a falling away of the possibility of of um, reasonable belief in God. No longer does belief in God seem to be a reasonable thing. So the death of God occurs when we have uh, the rise of, of science, when we have the rise of um, secularization in society. You know, the death of God occurs at that moment. And what happens, according to, to Nietzsche, is we no longer have meaning. And as you say, um, this might lead us to a kind of passive nihilism. And in passive nihilism, what do we do? Well, we simply lie back exhausted. We let the present destroy the possibility of a future. In active nihilism, by contrast, the idea is to destroy the present, to create a future, to destroy the ideals of the present in order to create new ideals. And that's exactly what the characters, um, in their individual ways, these teens, these six formers, um, try to do. They're trying to live the life um, which would create meaning, which, which, would, which would struggle for a fully-fledged um, form of human existence. So they're in this situation, the character. So, uh, sorry, the names escaped me again. Who have you got? You have, well, you've got Nietzsche, you've got Chandra, you've got Paula, you've got Art. Uh, and these are all uh, teenagers, I guess. Uh, so kind of, kind of uh, and I'm not saying this in a bad way, because the, the novel is quite funny. Uh, Nietzsche and the Burbs is quite a funny novel. It's kind of sort of reminding me if the in-betweeners had been reading sort of Beckett, Kafka, and Nietzsche. 
Sure. These are, um, it's a comic novel. It's supposed to be funny, it's supposed to be entertaining. And these are teenage characters who are teenagers of the present. So as you say, the in-betweeners who read Beckett, the in-betweeners who read Adorno, that's the kind of um, <laughs> characters I'm presenting here. I think, I think that captures it beautifully. So, thanks. Um, yeah, so when you were writing this, Lars, who is your, who did you imagine was your audience, I'm wondering? I mean, is it like, is it a book for everybody and nobody? I think it's a book for um, people who feel something similar to many of us, you know, to, who are overwhelmed right. by a sense of nihilism. So it's a book for people who feel a general sense of, of a lack of meaning, a lack of purpose, uh, who feel, find it difficult to engage in the world and are wondering why and, and, and what's going on and, and, uh, and, and where that comes from. So it's a, it's a book written for people who are living through this period of the fulfillment of nihilism in some sense, who, who are living this ordeal of nihilism. And I hope that these people, when they read it, will be entertained, they'll laugh or they're amused. They'll find some kind of solace in the fact that someone else feels um, as they do. And that's one of the reasons I, 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 you know, I turn to, to, um, to comedy. You know, if, I, if I want to put something on TV, I look in comedy for something which, which makes me feel I'm not alone in what I feel. So the idea then is the book reaches out to people who uh, who feel a lack of meaning, of purpose, of engagement. Uh, that that's the idea for me. Yeah, and the mood of the novel, I think, is very well. Maybe you can speak to this. The mood of the novel is self-consciously apocalyptic. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, it's certainly apocalyptic. So the novel is, um, it, it concerns the climatic catastrophe, financial catastrophe, all the characters in various ways, not just the, uh, the sixth formers, not just the school pupils, but also their teachers. All of them are um, overwhelmed by a sense of, of apocalypse. Now, apocalypse, we can use this term in the, the biblical sense, which means something being revealed, something being shown. It's normally God's plan that's being shown. But the apocalypse in the time of the death of God doesn't reveal anything. It reveals the absence of a plan, the absence of meaning, the absence of purpose. So that's what the characters all feel. They're overwhelmed by a sense of, of, um, of impending doom, of financial catastrophe and climatic collapse. Which is kind of true in a way, because we are actually uh, living those in times. Indeed. This is, this is exactly our reality. This is the world in which we, we, we inhabit. We inhabit a world in which you know, things seem to be moving towards a close, um, towards the end. And uh, it seems that as, as individuals, there's very little we can do about it. There's a lack of political will to change the world. Now, we see in, in people like Greta Thunberg a righteous anger, a righteous indignation at the state of things. But the question is, how does this connect up with any political movement? Right. And uh, that's, that's an interesting uh, uh, example the people who criticise Thunberg seem to be, well, people of our vintage Lars, probably people, uh, you know, middle-aged men who don't get to sail across the Atlantic uh, in a boat. But uh, she's, a, she's um, I mean, the critique she's getting is germane to your novel, I guess. You know, she's a, she's a, she's a teenager. She's someone who's trying to make the world a better place. You know, uh, you might sort of debate her tactically, whatever. But um, the vitriol and the ire that she's receiving very much is of that sort of nihilistic despair. It's like, it's cynical. You know, there's no point doing this. What is she at? You know, you can't save the entire planet. Everything must remain small. Is that, do you think that's there's something to that? Yes, absolutely right. I mean, Greta Thunberg is someone with, um, with ideals, with, uh, with, with aspirations. Um, you know, she wants to change the world. And this will seem to the cynics contemptible in and of itself. 
And that is, for me, a denial of, of what's implicit to youth. Youth, for me, um, is about hope, it's about possibility, it's about change. And although my characters are certainly made miserable by the state of the world in which they live, they are also active. They're trying to do something. They're trying to harness their apocalyptic energy um, for some, some meaning creation, um, some, 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 some task of, of, uh, of overcoming the people they are. And what do they do in the novel? I mean, there's a couple of things they do. I mean, they do what all teenagers do. I mean, they take drugs. They, you know, they form a band. Nietzsche and the Burbs, as the band is called, uh, which is uh, the eponymous uh, name of the band and the, of the name of your book. They, um, they hang out together and they have relationships. And so I'm, and I'm thinking, like, how for you does that sort of resistance to the apocalyptic tone manifest in the novel? Well, yeah, so the main thing, I suppose, in the novel is the, is the formation of the band. And that's my version of the real historical Nietzsche's aesthetic theodicy, his attempt to provide a non-theistic escape from nihilism through the redemption of suffering, um, through the creation of, of tragic works of art. So for historical Nietzsche, the, the way to, one way to make, make meaning is to um, try to escape from nihilism through a, a, an acknowledgement of suffering, a facing of suffering, and a redemption of suffering. The idea for, for, for the real Nietzsche is that we can somehow affirm suffering, that suffering is not something we should, uh, we should flee from, uh, that in fact suffering is something that we need to embrace if we're going to become greatly creative. So my characters form a band in order to be greatly creative in this way. What they're struggling against is what Nietzsche in Thus Spoke Zarathustra calls the culture of the, of the last men, uh, of the last human beings who know nothing of love or creation or longing, who want the same, are the same, they're mediocre. So that's what these characters are struggling against um, through the creation of this band. But the characters have other means of trying to escape nihilism. One character, Paula, places her faith in romantic love. Another character called Merv, in a sort of Dostoevskian spirituality and in, and in disco, um, another <laughs> character places her faith in, in lifestyle, in sunshine, food and swimming. And this means for her moving to France. Another character places his hopes in some kind of wild, uh, sacrificial suicide. So the characters are always trying to, to overcome nihilism, to overcome themselves in some way. Um, and at the end of the novel, you know, it's up for the, the reader will find out whether, whether they do actually, actually escape. Your diagnosis in the novel is of our modern Western capitalistic age. And I suppose if someone was going to sort of critique you, say, with all of those things that you listed as alternatives, they're all just kind of lifestyle choices. Those things are as empty as the despair that they're actually feeling, which is which they're all very, very self-conscious of. But is there, do you think there, there's something to that or do you think it's, there's, uh, that your characters have found something deeper, more meaningful? Well, that's the idea, yes. Yeah. So the characters are, are trying to, to, to overcome their situation, to overcome the, the nihilism of the suburbs actively. And this involves, uh, this involves acknowledging their suffering, embracing their suffering, facing up to the suffering that's implicit to human existence. One of the ways they do this, actually, is to, is to, is to recall moments of bullying in school. Not only the bullying that has affected them, but the bullying that's affected other people. So they've seen around them suffering and misery, and they want to try and escape this, not by denying its existence, but by transfiguring its meaning. 
So the way in which they try and do this is actually, again, modelled on the, on the real Nietzsche, on the historical Nietzsche. What they're trying to do is in some way affirm their existence, to affirm everything that, that, that they've suffered, that other people around them have suffered, to affirm it in the name of a great yes saying, a yay saying to existence. Let me set a context for this. What the, the real Nietzsche argues, what the real Nietzsche claims in his work, is that life is, is implicitly about suffering. Um, over the millennia, this has led to uh, Christianity, to Buddhism, to philosophy and art, the attempt to evade this suffering. Um, the, these, these cultural formations are an attempt to, to overcome um, suffering in some way. The point for Nietzsche is we need to face suffering and face existence as suffering. And once we contemplate this, once we contemplate the horror of existence, we, we, we mustn't give in to, to nausea and to despair. Now, one of the things Nietzsche argues is that uh, what frustrates us is that we cannot change the past. You know, we can't alter the past. We can alter the future, but we can't alter the past. And what the characters um, accept in in, in in Nietzsche and the Burbs is exactly this this impasse, this this sense in which the past, everything that's happened, can't be given meaning. But what they do instead, what they what they struggle for, is to try and affirm everything that's ever happened, everything that's ever occurred to them and other people, all the horrors, all the suffering. What they want to do is to affirm and say yes to all these things happening, to to affirm and say yes to everything wretched that's happened. And once they've done that, the idea is, and this is the result, they resemble um, the real Nietzsche here. Once they've done that, they've overcome. They've overcome nihilism. They've overcome any attempt they might make to evade suffering. They've embraced suffering. They've affirmed suffering as important. They've, they're looking towards the discipline of suffering, of great suffering, as being implicitly important to their creativity. And in so doing, they've left behind nihilism. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that the historical Nietzsche well, famously talked about, he was two concepts, I guess. There is his notion of amor fati, which mm. is the love of fate, which you, uh, which the characters reference in the novel. And there is also, I suppose, his critique of Christianity. Now, in his critique of Christianity, as I understand it, what he does is he, he criticizes Christianity because it turns suffering into a virtue or it sort of fetishizes suffering, if you follow me. Mm. And it's, you know, you, you know, the idea that you can redeem yourselves through suffering. But instead, he proposes this alternative, this notion of amor fati. So what's it did for you is the novel, uh, a representation or a, sort of a, a cipher for this av amor, amor, notion of amor fati? It's a way of saying, saying, saying yes to the world around around them. It's a way of affirming it exactly as it's happened and exactly as it's happening. It's acknowledging they can't make much of a dent in, 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 in politically, they can't change society, but what they can do is change their attitude towards the world around them. So in that sense, they have a, a love of, of fate, a love of what's happened, a love of, 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 of the suffering that has brought them to um, where it is they are. Yeah, it's quite a much of a modest goal in a way, isn't it, Lars? I mean, the, the, the characters, they you know, I guess, this, and this is sort of this sort of explains Nietzsche's sort of antipathy towards, or the historical Nietzsche's antipathy towards, you know, sort of grand schemes of sort of political transformation. All those grand schemes that he sort of prophesized would, uh, well, sort of morph into the worst forms of nihilism uh, in political ideologies of the twentieth century. But uh, in a sense, that's, Nietzsche is a lot more modest than that. Uh, all he's sort of proposing in his philosophy is that you can sort of change your attitude, and then you can sort of change the world around you. Mm. That's right. I mean, it might seem modest, but on the other hand, what Nietzsche is, is inviting us to do is to affirm 
the dreadful events that have occurred and, and occur all around us. Now, there is actually a, a critique of Nietzsche implicit in the work, and some of the characters um, speak about this. And the critique of Nietzsche is that you know, this, mm, this overcoming mm. of, of, of dreadful events, of, of horrors all around us, this is something which is actually impossible to do. Now, Nietzsche famously uh, has a great suspicion of the emotion of pity. So for Nietzsche, um, pity is something which is inherently yeah, suspicious. Compassion. Compassion yeah. is a Christian virtue, yeah. Exactly. These, these things are um, inherently problematic because they lead us to sympathize with um, poor people around us, with people who are suffering. And that distracts us from the task of, of becoming great in some way. And this is the, the side of Nietzsche which can be very hard to, to swallow um, for uh, contemporary readers, is that Nietzsche has a great suspicion of equality. Um, of the democracy, idea that human yeah. beings are equal, yeah, and and of democracy. So Nietzsche wants to um, to, to 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 leave uh, these ideas of, of the egalitarian of, of of democracy behind. He he rejects politics as a as a path to follow, which is going to lead to greatness. By contrast, what Nietzsche places faith in is this this is this um, this 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 ability to 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 love fate, to overcome suffering or the, the effect of suffering uh, to overcome nihilism by embracing the situation you're in. What if Nietzsche's right, Lars, I wonder? You know, I understand what you're saying. I mean, the, the, that Nietzsche is very unpalatable to lots of people for, well, for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons that people don't get on with Nietzsche is because he's, you know, he's, he's very critical of human rights. He's very critical of egalitarianism and equality, as you say. But all of those are kind of sort of structures of belief. I think he's probably critical of the idea that you can find salvation in external in, in external forms. Is that, is that that right? You know, you, that's what happens at the death of God. We, with, with the death of God, we have this sort of gaping void at the core of our being. We've got no meaning. We've got no purpose. So what do we do? We sort of uh, we we come up with these replacement ideologies. Be that a politics in sort of fascism, socialism, democracy, or be that in whatever, in sexuality, or we, we are in sort of food or alcohol, whatever. All of these things which 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 we fetishize, I suppose, are overemphasized to sort of to fill that gap, to fill that void. And that for Nietzsche at least a very sort of destructive, self-destructive even consequences. For Nietzsche, is it the question that we've to sort of we have to save ourselves from salvation, be that in religion or politics or whatever. Yeah, in some sense, that, that has a plausibility when looking at Nietzsche's work. What Nietzsche, what Nietzsche is suspicious of is anything, of anything which will give us um, false soccer, false consolation. What Nietzsche admires is looking, you know, looking at suffering, looking at, at the horror of the world, um, just and, and bearing it. So, in that sense, for him, these political social solutions are entirely um, uh, palliative. You know, these are just attempt to to try and ignore suffering, to ignore horror. And you know, he writes wonderfully um, in, in Daybreak about this, this objective of obliterating the, all the sharp edges of life, of changing human beings into, into sand, into small, soft, round, unending sand. And that's where he thinks um, what the people he calls heralds of sympathetic affections are going to lead us. We're going to become mediocre, mediocre um, uh, particles of sand who are smooth and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and simply lie there. Well, this is all very well, but in Nietzsche's work, there's also this, this, um, a, an attempt to transfigure or overcome the world. And this is his version of religion. Now, here it's no longer a monotheistic religion that's at issue. It's not about God. 
But there is a, a strongly um, a religious impulse in his account of what he calls um, the, the, the eternal return, the idea of, of, of affirming the eternal recurrence. We've already touched on this in the discussion of um, Amalfati. Mm. The idea for Nietzsche is that there's a, there's a kind of um, a thought experiment that we can do, this thought experiment of affirming life in all its horror. And that is supposed to transfigure our relationship to the world around us. And perhaps it will have some effect on the world and on, on people around us. So that is what Nietzsche proposes positively in his philosophy. That's something which he thinks is, is a counter-movement to all the, the, the false ideologies that, um, that, that, that keep us from confronting the meaninglessness of existence. Now, I want to sort of slightly change tack here. Um, as well as the characters in Nietzsche and the Burbs, uh, there is one other character which feeds into what you've been saying about sort of, you know, sort of mediocrity and, you know, all that sort of, that's a beautiful, that's a beautiful prose that you sort of, uh, uh, that you mentioned there, Lars, about Nietzsche and Sand and all that. But, uh, the other kind of big character is the most mediocre character of all in this novel, and that's the suburbs, the suburbs themselves and the suburban ennuyeux that they precipitate. So I was wondering, could you maybe talk a little bit about that as how, well, firstly, what are, what, how do the suburbs figure in the book and sort of what's, I suppose, the philosophical significance for you? Yeah, the, the suburbs are comfortable, they're safe, you can feel at home in the suburbs, but this is a feeling at home of people who've given up on this larger task of, of loving or creating or longing according to, according to a Nietzschean diagnosis. So what, you know, if, if we have to follow Nietzsche here, uh, the suburbs are a way of settling down, of, um, of preventing ourselves uh, from despising our, ourselves, of trying to overcome ourselves. Of, it, 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 the suburbs are a form of wretched contentment. So suburbs are a place where, <laughs> the, where the, last, the last human beings live, where everyone wants the same, where everyone is the same. That's, that's the problem with the suburbs. The suburbs present themselves as the invention of happiness. Now, the idea is that the suburbs um, embody happiness, the happy life. And that's what the, the, the characters struggle against. It's not that the suburbs aren't pleasant. It's not that they aren't safe and a great place to raise children. The point is, for the, for the characters, the suburbs have pretended to invent the happy life. And it's that happy life that they reject. Yeah. So, and I mean, that, that is the nihilism, isn't it? Suburban nihilism, in a sense. It's sort of, that's a wonderful phrase, a wretched contentment, you know, sort of happy in your own demise. But the suburbs are, they do speak to that notion of nihilism as that which is leveling, that which is generating uniformity, mm. that which is demating sameness, and boredom, and boredom as well, which is another big character in your novel. That's like, these, these kids are bored. Mm, exactly. Yes, exactly. So the, su the, the suburbs do not offer the characters a chance for growth and self-overcoming. It doesn't offer the characters uh, the possibility of, um, of overcoming themselves, of, of, being, of, yeah, of distinction in some way. So this, for me, is what the suburbs are against. They're against life, understood in a general sense. They're against what it means to be human in a large sense. What's missing here is a, a kind of health a kind of ascent, a developing towards greater modes of being. The suburbs are stagnant. They drive us into mediocrity, into the condition of sand grains. The characters, these, uh, these teenagers, 
they have a, a that Nietzschean aristocratic disdain for people who live in the suburbs and they sort of see themselves in some ways better. Now, I suppose it's one of the things that people don't like Nietzsche for either, you know, mm. that he, ha- he does have this sort of sense of hierarchy or, you know, to try to conceive themselves as Nietzsche's ubermensch. So maybe I was wondering, is that is that something that was in your mind when you were writing the novel or composing the novel, that is sort of the ubermensch is an alternative to this suburban sort of decay or this suburban... Well, maybe decay is too strong a word because, as you say, like, you know, like people like us, probably most academics live in the suburbs, like, you know, sort of middle class people, middle class mm. anxieties. So in what sense are these students and the, these 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 teenagers ubermensch? Well, the characters, some of them at least want to strive towards this this Nietzschean greatness. But other characters call it into question. Um, Paula, for example, the character Paula. Oh, great character. Very, yeah. Yeah. He's very suspicious. Of this, of this, of this attempt to, 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 to become great, she's very suspicious of Nietzsche, the the character, and indeed Nietzsche, the philosopher. What she thinks is that the Nietzsche is just a wretch. He's a wretched guy who sits around and he's unhappy with life, and he conjures up these great metaphysical um, ideas as a, as a way of trying to overcome um, his his isolation. And that's what Paula thinks about the real Nietzsche and the Nietzsche in the novel. And what Paula argues, what, what she says throughout the novel is that pity and compassion actually have some kind of importance. They're not things to be despised. That what human beings are are not isolated grains of sand, but nor are they isolated uh, attempts to become ubermensch. The point is for, for, um, for Paula is that we can have meaningful relations with other people. Paula understands this primarily in the novel romantically, but it's also there in, in the friendship the characters enjoy. Uh, and I wanted the novel to to put this point really quite quite um, forcefully, that the Nietzschean intolerance of pity, of compassion, the Nietzschean emphasis on the solitary ubermensch, it, it, it passes over the the lived reality of, of of friendship, of forms of community, and the possibility of social and political change. And Paula embodies that, and so in a, in a more um, humorous way does uh, my character Merv, who, you know, this is, this is part of the fun of the novel, it's part of its cartoonish uh, uh, element, um, Merv becomes a convert to Dostoevsky, and he espouses uh, Father Zosima-like uh, views. <laughs> idiot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, you know, he, yeah, he reads The Idiot, and they, they all thought he was the idiot of the, of the group, but actually he turns out to be the sage of the group. So, yeah, with Merv, with Paula, and, and elsewhere in the novel, I'm trying to call into question this um, aristocratism, this, this um, inegalitarian um, part of, of Nietzsche's work. Yeah, uh, can I ask, um, maybe I'm reading too much into it here, why is uh, that character called Paula? Is, well, it, because, is it a reference to St. Paul? <laughs> no, well... <laughs> it, it ah, I'm reading too much into it. Like, it's supposed to be Paul Ray. She was actually, oh, she was of course, Ray. right. Yeah. But then, you know, I, I, she took over. She, she, she had her own character. <laughs> it's like and Cartman, maybe, yeah. And maybe it is linked to Paul in some way. There's references to, to St. Paul throughout the novel. Uh, art is uh, what he began as Arthur Schopenhauer, Arthur Schopenhauer. So that's so the idea was, you know, and Lou, of course, began Lou as... Lou Salome, uh, yeah. Yeah, that's right, as Lou Salome. So these were, were based on these <laughs> historical personages, but actually they, they, they moved away from their original positions. They began drifting about as, as, I, as, I, as I carried on writing the novels. Yeah, so Paula kind of becomes a bit of a sort of a hero in it, like, you know, and, uh, well, I don't believe in ruining spoilers, so I'm going to do it anyway. She, um, well, she basically cops off with Nietzsche's... Uh, a girlfriend, but uh, I suppose like what her critique is in the novel is that 
and this is probably germane to the idea of the suburbs, is that what they're adopting is a pose. These, they, they're, they're looking for poses. They're looking for some kind of a version of themselves, you know, that's not the ver- what they actually are, you know? Uh, yeah. They, they're, they're understanding themselves in world historical form. And what Paula suggests is, you know, and it's, 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 it's a point which is made, it's kind of funny, but it's also serious. Paula suggests we look, we look to disco as a, as a, as a, a more positive <laughs> phenomenon. Now, this is the disco of the loft in, in New York back in the, back in the 70s. It's a disco of, now I've forgotten the name of that guy, which is really annoying, um, the Love Will, Love Will Save the Guy DJ, who, who led a very, very moving life. So the guy that they're thinking about when it comes to disco is, now what's his name? D- David Mancuso, that's right. And David Mancuso was an orphan who um, moved to New York and after various adventures, set up this, this, um, this, this disco in a place which he called The Loft. Right. It was actually his space. He owned it. It was part of a warehouse. And it's, it's very, very moving when you read biographies of D- David Mancuso. Because what David Mancuso did, he blew up these balloons and let, let them float at chest height. He would squeeze fresh orange juice for his guests. He'd bake organic, um, organic bread for them. He wouldn't charge people very much. He always let in people who'd be excluded elsewhere. He played the records without interruption. He didn't have an ego as a DJ. Um, you know, he, he, was, he, he, was, he wanted to create a space where everyone felt welcome. And what's amazing is that David Mancuso was trying to recreate moments of joy that he felt when he was in his orphanage. One of the nuns who ran the orphanage used to stage these parties in which he'd let the children pick records to play and blow up balloons and and float about and generally um, get everyone to have fun. And that is what Merv talks about. And Merv talks about the disco. And Paula thinks about the disco too. Because the disco is a place where you let in, um, you know, uh, black people, Hispanic people, gay people, transsexual people. You welcome into the, in, into the disco all kinds of people as a kind of community. And this disco, um, this disco form of, of the ethical, if I can call it that, is embodied <laughs> in a second band in Neutral and the Burbs. And the second band is called Dancing Star. And I love that name, Dancing Star. It amused me when I thought of that because it reminded me, you know, of the, of the famous quotation in Nietzsche, you must have chaos in yourself to give birth to a dancing star. And this is a dancing star that embraces the chaos of, of, of queer, multiracial life in New York. This is, the, this is the wonderful chaos of the loft. So I counterpose the loft and the band Dancing Star to Nietzsche and the Burbs. Nietzsche and the Burbs is serious, it's rockist, it's, it sees itself world historically. Disco's much more frivolous and fun, and yet it has a set, positive sense of community, as implicit to it. Right, yeah, so it's kind of a, kind of a community of difference, I guess, of some kind mm. that, 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 that Disco... Uh... That disco poses, yeah. I did. Sorry, I didn't. I didn't. I didn't pick up. I'm glad you told me about that because I wasn't. I didn't pick up on that that <laughs> that disco reference in the in the novel. So then I think so. Disco is kind of an antidote to the to the. To, I suppose the fact that a lot of these characters, like Nietzsche himself, and you know the the other characters, might take themselves a little bit too seriously, right? Mm. And I I like that because. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask you is like that these are these these are nihilists, right? Uh, are they going through nihilism? They're trying to respond to nihilism and trying to overcome the despair and mental health problems attendant to nihilism. And you you do reference this in the book. I mean, why why don't they? The question I wanted to ask is, oh, why don't they become terrorists? Why don't they go down 
go down that road? Why disco rather than ISIS? Is well, that is that the, is that the question the novel is asking? Yeah, but Chandra, the character Chandra, does propose terrorism. That's right. Um, and um, revolutionary sabotage is also um, proposed by um, the character Art. So terrorism is a temptation for them. And you know, in, in some sense, the the, the characters uh, are led to this kind of world denying uh, will to nothingness of um, of terrorism as a consequence of of some of the ways of the, of their patterns of thinking. So I wanted Chandra in particular to to embody this the, the temptation of death of um, of nothingness, the the attempt to simply destroy the world, destroy yourself. And the, the way I dramatise this is by talking about a character called now what was her name i've forgotten annie tasker that's right and annie tasker has killed herself before the novel began annie tasker is a fellow pupil of the of the six formers and she killed herself and many of the characters um they discuss the significance of annie tasker's um suicide now for chandra suicide is admirable it's a way of simply negating a world that you cannot stand it's a it's a form of personal apocalypse but for Paula, by contrast, you destroy the very possibility of a world, the very possibility of life through this kind of suicide. So that's how I dramatise uh, this, this, um, this in the novel, this idea of taking life, to taking oneself a bit too seriously, perhaps, of rather of, of, um, of being drawn to various forms of, of death, of dissatisfaction, of, of destroying the world. But, you know, this is, it's a serious point. The notion of the apocalypse, the, the, the experience of the apocalypse, as we find in history, is often linked to these, these antinomian movements, these movements that try and overturn the world as it currently exists. Now, opposed to those attempts to simply overturn everything about the world are those attempts to reform the world within, you know, within, within the, the parameters of, of current life. And that is what Paula attempts to do. It's what Merv perhaps points to, I think Paul in particular points to this, in this idea of, of a community of love, a community um, where love is the law. And that's the reference to Paul there, I think, in, in Paula's name. Uh, a lot of those are previous forms, I guess, Lars, um, you know, like, so you could like disco, and then there's the, I mean, basically, I think a sort of 1990s dance culture is also sort of referenced mm -hmm. as another type of alternative community or another sort of pursuit of meaning that has emerged as a, a countervailing force to the sort of pervasive suburban nihilism, do you envisage any sort of future for these characters? You know, I mean, the novels it concludes around the time of uh, you know, you know, they they they're doing their exams and stuff like that, and kind of the future is open. Mm. Do do you think that? How shall I put this? Do you discern any future versions of those alternative lifestyles? If you follow me, well, the the. The novel, I mean, we've got real spoilers here, so apologies to, to readers. Oh, spoilers are great. Spoilers make okay. you work harder. Yeah, I don't so, mean for that. <laughs> it's my own so, bugbear, yeah. The novel, the novel comes to a close um, with an affirmation of hope. And all mm. the characters get together. All the characters are going to live with one another. All the characters are going to inhabit Art's house. Um, Art is one of the characters who's been abandoned by his parents. They've Commune, gone, yeah. They've gone off to live in America. And... The, the parents are going to demolish the house and bring Art over to, to America to live with them. And Art says he's not going to go to America. He's not going to go to Boston. He's going to stay where he is in Wokingham. And he's going to resist the demolition of his house. And he's going to do this with um, his friends. His friends are all going to move in with him. Now, this is a, a, a subplot in the novel. It's something which 
you get, you, get, you know, it, it comes up at various points. But at the end of the novel, the, the, um, the, the, the guys who were interested in the band have turned away from the band, and now they're thinking of forms of communal life. And they've been able to persuade Paula and Merv and the other characters, Noel and, and, and Tana, they've, they've, they've persuaded them all to come together in this commune. And that is the, the, the model of hope for them. Now, of course, in that commune, what I was thinking of was the Invisible Committee. So the middle committee and struggling with their thoughts, struggling with their ideas, lies behind a lot of this novel and indeed the next novel I'm writing at the moment. Uh, for the invisible committee, you can separate yourself off into a commune. You know, politics as it currently stands, nothing's really going to happen. Nothing's really going to change. Sorry, the invisible committee, Lars, could you just Oh, yeah, that? this group of anarchists um, who yeah. live in the French countryside. And they've, uh, they're, they're a collective and they've written um, um, as a collective uh, three books. The first one's called The Coming Community. They came out about 15 years ago. The second one, my favourite one, is called To Our Friends. And the third one came out recently. I've forgotten what it's called. But it's also you know, a really fine provocation. And what you find in the Vidal Committee is an attempt to, to live in the world in a kind of exodus, to live outside of conventional institutions, conventional structures. And what they've done, and this is, this is, this is something they, 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 this is what they embody in, 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 their, um, in their lives, what they've done is to form a community, form a, form a commune, in the French countryside, and that's where they live. And they seem to occasionally carry out acts of, of sabotage. But they also write these wonderful, wonderful books, which are so provocative and so um, thought-provoking. I'm always tempted to go and form a radical commune. And <laughs> I'm not sure about, I'm not sure about um, revolutionary sabotage, but I'm always tempted to, to leave, behind, leave behind the world, leave society, just go. Go to the mountains. Go to the mountains. Make revolution. Yeah. Go somewhere. We just just try and live in a way which is um, where, where you, we have some sort of integrity, where you're not constantly doing things you despise, doing things which are totally ethically dubious. Yeah, doing a so, bullshit job, like uh, uh, what's his name says, yeah, David Graeber, Graeber is David it? David yeah. Graeber says, yeah, sure. So this is the point. I think um, Biffo puts this really well. Now, what what do you say? So about Franz, Fran, Fran, Francesco Berardi is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Franco Biffo, Italian philosopher. Yeah. That's right. Now, Biffo says somewhere, you know, we have to simply refuse the world. We just simply have to refuse the world as it currently stands, a word very common to all these Italian philosophers. We have to live in some kind of exodus. So just get out of the world, live in exodus, refuse the consolations of the world, just get out. And that's where the characters end up at the end of the novel. They, they end up in, um, uh, with, with, with a decision to form a commune. Yeah, I mean, I think you might be right on that, Lars. I think that could be the future. I mean, we see, we've seen iterations of this in the past. Like, I mean... You know, those the hippie culture in the '60s was a you know was a type of commune. Woodstock, I guess, being the sort of the prime example of that. But in the future, I think there could be two. You know, with the sort of fragmentations that we're going to be experiencing with the climate collapse, with sort of political disintegration, it's it's. I could envisage people turning to communes. Mm. Communes are the family. Communes are the family. Maybe the le communes are sort of your left-wing version of it. The family is your right-wing version of it. Although, I, obviously, that's a sort of a, a silly binary. Well, yeah. The problem is, though, a left critique of, of, of the commune is mm. that we need larger institutions if we're going to affect change. How are we going to address climate change technologically yeah. through geoengineering unless we have institutions? How are we going to uh, even feed the amount of people who are in the world at the moment without institutional help? What about something like the NHS? If the NHS is to, mm. is to exist, we need to have some kind of collective institution that we, that we all pay for for our taxes. So that might be the left, left um, critique of uh, communalism, of the, of the idea of the commune.
But this is not a critique which would impress the abysmal committee themselves. Why is that? Because they want to reject institutions as such. What they want to do is to live in what Gambon calls in the last volume of his Homo Seca um, series. They want to live in destitution. So to destitute is to undo forms of institution, to move outside of them and our dependency on them. And here I think the visible committee are very influenced by a philosopher who's you know, not really very, very, very much read, and that's Ivan Illich. So Ivan Illich's yeah. work, very yeah. famous in the 70s. It's a Christian, uh, he, uh, yeah, Christian sort of pedagogic thinker, mm. yeah. And uh, what uh, Ivan Illich wrote a series of books, each of which was concerned with a particular institution and how he might leave that institution. Yeah, so most famously, sorry to cut across you, Lars, most mm. famously even Illich wrote Deschooling Society. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he not only wrote these books, but he also founded movements, social movements, which really has some efficacy in the context in which he was working. So Ivan Illich, I think he's very important influence on a Gambon. I think he's a very important influence on the Visible Committee. And he's someone who I read and try to follow, try to understand, try to think through in my own small way. But that, Ivan Illich's work is a, is a big influence on, on, on what I've been trying to do in this novel and, and indeed the next novel. Yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the things, the sort of the suburban nihilism that you're talking about. There is, I think, in the novel, a critique of institutions. And I mean, that feeds into what you're saying about Illich, you know, de-schooling society, kind of a sort of a, a well, there's a kind of an anarchistic uh, dimension to what these characters are representing. And sort of in, the, in, the, in the novel, there's a sort of uh, a critique of, uh, well, there's a critique of schools. Mm. There's a critique of universities, uh, science teachers. I think business courses in particular come yes. in for particular ire. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next novel is, um, is polemic against business business studies. Is it? Yeah, the whole the whole novel is <laughs> is just written against business, business studies at school and at university. But yeah, you're right. So there are there are anti institutional moments in the novel, and you know much of it is anarchistic. The students, I, I deliberately want to present the pupils, the school pupils, as caught between a kind of. Um, Aristocratic, aristocratic envy. They, they, they want to, they want, they want to have been fee-paying school children. They want to have been to one of the, the big private schools. Yeah. Uh, they want to have gone to Oxford. You know that they, they, they have this about them. But at the same time, they're also drawn to ideas of the common, to ideas of living in community, living in communes. So there's a tension in the work. It's very deliberate. I, I'm very careful about this. On the one hand, they're drawn towards inegalitarian Nietzschean. Um, solutions to the problem of nihilism. On the other, they're drawn to uh, left anarchist um, communalism. So that's the tension in the work, and we know how it resolves at the end. Yeah, I mean, it's the conclusion is is. I mean, you leave the last words with Paula in the novel, don't you? Well, it's yeah. kind of Beckettian. The, the 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 end of the novel. It's we'll um, sort of sorry. What was that famous quote from Beckett? Fail, fail better. Is that right? That's right. But fail better is actually the name of of, of the consultancy formed by Nietzsche's right. sister in the novel as well. <laughs> oh, she's she's not very nice, is she, her? <laughs> <laughs> well, she's she's my embodiment of what the the predecessors to the Invisible Committee, who were called the Ticken Collective. Ticken Collective wrote this wonderful book called Theory of the Young Girl. And she's my embodiment of the young girl, the thrusting business type, the entrepreneur, the person who has a very clear sense of what happiness is and how one should live. That's Nietzsche's sister in the novel. 
And that's what she proposes when she comes to talk to the sixth form and to the pupils in the sixth form. She's asking them to come and join the new corporate reality, um, to give up their youth, to uh, to come along and, and oppose and struggle with corporate reality. But as part of that corporate reality. To work for the man, basically, to sell out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but what's, what the twist in the novel is that and it's, it's, I drew this from the work of Peter Fleming. Peter Fleming is a contemporary business uh, studies person who is against, you know, the, the normal things you'd find in business studies. And Peter Fleming has written several case studies of the way in which firms try to incorporate counterculture, the way in which firms try to incorporate dissent. Right. So, for example, you might have, I don't know, a major firm like, you know, having a float at Pride or something like that. That's right. And even more than that, in the interview process, they'll often say, tell me what you hate about our firm. And it could be consumerism. It could be an emphasis on profit. So these firms actually want to hear from their employees about what they hate about the firm. And the, the firms in response offer SOPs. For example, people working for the firm can go and do some charity work for a morning per week. Or they're allowed to do a, a, allowed for a two-week sabbatical to go off to an African country to, to build huts there, this sort of thing. So that is one of the things I wanted to embody in that character, uh, Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's sister. And you're absolutely right to say the novel ends with, this, with, with Paula. And Paula says at the end of the novel, we'll just fail, but that's okay. And what I was thinking there, I was thinking about the collective group that the um, literary theorist and novelist Maurice Blanchot formed in the early 60s and it was called the the international review and this was a this was a group which was going to try and diagnose uh, the current situation in the world through a collective writing practice and reflecting on the failure of that group Blanchot writes it failed but it did so utopianly and that's what I was thinking of when giving Paul that line. Things can fail, but they can be mini utopias. They can point towards something positive, something something um, worthwhile. Right. So then I think what uh, sort of to, to draw things to a close, I guess. I mean, I mean, I think you've given a really good account of the novel, and uh, you've sort of, we've uh, you sort of made made it even richer for me because I, I mean, well, you know, when you read, you know, you don't. Uh, oh yeah, well, reading is a sort of an active task, isn't it? You know, mm. and, I, and I guess sort of, uh, well, I guess Blanchot is behind this novel as well, Lars, isn't he? I mean, he's one of your. Well, I mean, you've written a lot of academic work on Blanchot, Mark yeah, Blanchot, the French philosopher. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So thematically, uh, my concerns are often the concerns you you might find in Blanchot's work. So you know, I'm always very interested in the relation to the other, the other human being or, or other others as well. And that interest is something which guided my work in writing on Blanchot, trying to excavate out of Blanchot's work and ethics and a politics in some way, and try to, try to think um, his relationship with his close friend, the philosopher Emmanuel Levinas, try and think through that oh. relationship between Blanchot and Levinas in such a way that we might produce a... Um, uh, I don't know, a sort of social philosophy or a political philosophy, something like that. That was always my concern when I worked in academic philosophy. And uh, I wrote the, these books on, on these topics and papers. Not very good books, not very good papers, but th I was trying nevertheless. Oh, they That's, were magisterial, Lars. They were magisterial. Oh, magisterial. <laughs> but that, that project carries over into the novels, in particular into the first three novels I wrote, yeah. the Spurious Trilogy. They are drawn straight out of, uh, the, all the themes there are drawn straight out of, uh, of my attempt to think that relationship between Blanchot and Levinas. Yeah. So I'm wondering why why those figures. So like your the Spurious trilogy was sort of your Blanchot books, I guess. Uh, your last book was on Wittgenstein, mm. and this book is on Nietzsche. I'm not sure what the next one will be on. Uh, Simone, it's be Simone on... Weil. Simone Weil. Simone Weil. Okay. Okay. Mm. Okay. Right. Simone Weil and Business School. Yeah. Yeah. So what is it about those three figures? Is there something that 
do they have a common denominator? Is there something that you think is important about those type of, I guess, they're kind of anti-philosophers in a way? They are, that's right. The first three novels are about uh, the characters W and Lars looking for a leader. The next three novels, which is which I call the Philosopher's Trilogy, is about leaders appearing in the midst of, of groups of, of individuals. So the leaders have appeared. What, they, what are they like? The leaders embody philosophy in some sense. They live philosophy in their lives. They're doing what Pierre Adot, the great uh, French uh, philosopher of ancient, ancient thought, what he called a spiritual life. They're attempting to embody philosophy in the way in which they live, in everything they do, in the way they speak, in every gesture. And that's what we find in Wittgenstein. That's what we find in Nietzsche. That's what we find in Simone Weil. It's a revival of a more ancient sense that philosophy is about the way in which you live and that you as a philosopher have to live in a very particular and exemplary way. And that is something which inspires the people around them. And what's interesting here is the people around these individuals often don't understand the actual philosophy that <laughs> these individuals are espousing. Now, if you look at um, people around <laughs> Wittgenstein, that, that was what people... You hang out with academics, yeah? <laughs> yeah, well, so, so around Wittgenstein, there are a whole bunch of people who said, look, we, we had no idea in Wittgenstein's seminars what he was talking about. But what was compelling about him was his seriousness. What was compelling was the way in which he put ideas together. And that's what these three thinkers embody for me, um, for the characters around them. They don't, the characters around uh, Wittgenstein, uh, my version of Wittgenstein, my version of Nietzsche, and in the next novel, my version of Simone Weil, the characters around them don't really understand fully the philosophies. They have a rough sense of what's going on, but no more than that. And they bumble about in their own way. But, you know, the, the idea then for me is uh, what do you do when, when, you, when, you, when you're confronted with someone who tries to live philosophy? What effect does it have on you? So that's what these three novels, these philosophers' novels are about. Yeah, and that's, yeah, that's where the comedy uh, emerges from, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Blancho is an interesting one for me because he's one of the, sort of, he's one of the few philosophers who, who started off sort of right-wing, I think. He was quite sort of sort of taken with sort of fascistic ideas, but he kind of became more left-wing as he sort mm. of got older. And he's kind of, all of those figures, right, have a kind of a redemptive quality in them. They're all kind of sort of secular saints. Mm, they are. That I mean, that's that kind of a clumsy term, sort of secular saints, but is, is that something that you're trying to articulate in your novels? You know, I mean, we haven't really talked about the religious dimension of, 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 of this, you know. Is, is, is that something you're trying to articulate or is that something you're trying to get to you know yes yeah, meaning absolutely. meaningless world yeah so so how um so, so someone like simone Weil embodies this spiritual life in such an overwhelming way you read a biography it is at one with her thought and yeah likewise people like blanchard i think edith wishagrod didn't she write a novel about postmodern saints wasn't that what it was called and yeah in that novel i think she discusses yes. blanchard um, and and it, it, Blanchot's thought, she probably didn't know much about his life. A lot more about his life has emerged now. So yeah, this, this idea of sainthood is something I'm explicitly exploring in Simone Weil. Sainthood and the impossibility of sainthood. That's also very important to me. Because these kinds of figures, when they reappear in contemporary Britain, they're so far from anything you encounter in ordinary life that they're also ridiculous figures. They're, they're laughable figures. They're idiots. They're holy fools, as well as being, you know, uh, full of gravity and, and seriousness. So I, when I recreate these characters, when I um, reincarnate them in contemporary life, I make them idiotic in some sense. I make them close to a kind of foolishness. And I make them kind of more depressed than their counterpart, their real counterparts were, more out of place, more sad. There's a sadness about Nietzsche in this, in this novel in particular. So when he talks about affirmation, 
you know, when he talks about what, what, um, how we should aspire to become great, there's also something pathetic about the way in which he says that. At least that's what I was trying, that's what I was trying to convey as I wrote. So yes, sainthood, but also the impossibility of sainthood, the impossibility of what these figures might embody in our world, because they're just so remote from you know, postmodern life, where these big names uh, are no longer famous, no longer well-known, they've been dissolved, where the, you know, the great names of modernity, these great philosophers, they don't really have much, um, purchase. much yeah, purchase on, on this world around us. So the actual Nietzsche, the actual, the historical Nietzsche, he ended up in a sort of, um, yeah, as I mean, uh, you, you mentioned in the novel that, and I didn't actually know this, but uh, Elizabeth Nietzsche, historical Nietzsche's uh, fascist sister, she basically kind of turned Nietzsche after he had his, his, his mental collapse into a kind of a sort of a sort of a. a almost like a theme park ride. Like mm. she, she, she charged people to go and have a look at him. Is that correct? Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> well, Pretty she's, much. A, she's a charmer. <laughs> well, and she's very similar to Nietzsche's sister. To Nietzsche's sister in the novel, she claims mm. to be very proud of, 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 of Nietzsche, of the, Nietzsche in the novel. And, you know, she thinks he's fantastic. He's very booky and clever. But you could imagine her trying to turn his thought, turn his life into something that could be monetized. She already called her consultancy fail better consultancy. So she succeeded in, in monetizing Beckett, this famous yeah. quotation from Beckett. And you can imagine her constructing a motivational book out of things that the historical Nietzsche or my Nietzsche might have said. She's the last man, basically, I think. Uh, is she's the last man. She's the young girl of the, of the Ticken book. Um, she's supposed to be the very incarnation of this. Um, a figure who... You know, in trying to put her together, it was extremely important for me to get her right. I read a lot of books on management theory, on business studies, uh, to try and get a sense of the reality of, of contemporary corporate life. Right. So, uh, and Nietzsche in the book, your Nietzsche, he he also has a mental collapse. You know, mm. at the end, and he uh, ends up in a he ends up tragically in an institution. Is that right? That's right. So he he ends up in an institution. He's already had one mental collapse in his life. This is his second one. What will happen as a result? Well, who quite knows? But he'll be released into the company of his mother and his sister. His sister's a horror, but his mother is also a horror. And again, you know, I was thinking of the historical Nietzsche, who's released into the care of his mother and his sister. And um, this the, the, the Nietzsche's mother in, in my novel is you know, a heavy drinker. She's someone who seems to have a uh, an incestuous uh, love of her son. She despised Nietzsche's father. And, you know, so Nietzsche's being released when he comes out of the institution. He's released back into these people's care. So things are not going to go well for him, I think. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so uh, just to draw things to a close, then, should we now read Nietzsche? Should we be reading Nietzsche? Is Nietzsche sort of a therapy for the all the ailments of the age? Well, he's certainly not, <laughs> not, not quite a therapy in that way. Look, I mean, <laughs> Nietzsche's very familiar to us as... This existentialist, the death of God, nihilism, and so on and so forth. But I think it's very important to remember the other side of Nietzsche, the very disturbing anti-egalitarian Nietzsche. And that's a figure to wrestle with and to think about. Malcolm Bull wrote an interesting book a few years ago for Verso mm. called um, Anti-Nietzsche, which suggests we might read Nietzsche not as people who think that we are the ubermensch, that we are the great people that the free spirits uh, Nietzsche is writing for, but to read from a, and what's he called it, to read as losers to read Nietzsche as a loser in some sense. And that is a way, I think, of, of thinking about what Nietzsche might mean to us. To read Nietzsche, to, but to think of oneself as less than an ubermensch, as very much less than a free spirit. 
Okay, okay. So I think we'll uh, thank you very much, Lars. We'll draw to a close there. Thanks very much, Patrick.